Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Let me pray as we get started. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to speak. Um, We pray, Holy Spirit, that in this moment, we are able to say what you would have us to say. We pray that the word of God would be uh, revealing right now, and it would speak to the very depth of who we are and how we are to be. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you think about the first time you heard about sex, or the first time you had a detailed, intimate insight about sex, more likely than not, uh, it happened through a song, or it happened in a movie, or it happened from a peer group, or somebody talking to you about sex. Maybe you had a teacher say it in the classroom, but it was very PC. But the real conversation happened after class. And so for many of us, there was a lot of discussion about sex, sexuality. But it seems like everyone has a word about sex, except the people that we were supposed to have most safe, parents, pastors, mentors, people to truly guide us in this area. And so I realize that for many of you today, this might be the first time you have somebody really have an honest conversation with you where you're live and you see it, or you're seeing it online. And so I want to operate in that posture to pastor you in this area and to care for you so that you would know what God thinks about this subject. There was a community that had a very prevalent issue of sex in its uh, church, and it was a city of Corinth. And so they constantly had sex. They were being berated. They had idols to sex, and it was constantly throughout their community. And so Paul the Apostle, uh, in pastoring them, actually writes them a letter. It's the book of 1 Corinthians. And in writing them this letter, he mentions this issue of sex, and he does something really powerful. He quotes the philosophers of the day because he presumes that you're hearing a lot in the, uh, a lot of talk about this, and you need spiritual guidance, so he quotes them. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul will quote, he says, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And he goes on to say, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Now understand what Paul was doing there. He's Their quotation marks are based upon the fact that he's quoting a philosopher, and what the philosopher is saying, listen, Food's for your stomach, stomach's for food. This is why when you get hungry, what happens? You eat. You have to eat when you get hungry. And you have an organ, internal organ, that tells you that you have an appetite. And he was indicating that the philosophers of the day were saying your internal organs are like your sexual organs. And so in the same way that you, you know that you have a sexual hunger. You know you have urges, and so you must feed them. And in our culture, we have an appetite view of sex. In this view, it, it likens 
the lack of sex to starvation. Think about that. Think about getting together with your friends. Say, have you ever been to Ruth's Chris? Yeah, I've been to Ruth's Chris. Yeah, ooh, that's good. Ruth's Chris is so good. You ever been to Popeye's? Oh, yeah, Popeye's. That's crazy. You ever been to Shake Shack? Oh, I've been to Shake Shack. Yeah. Everybody's talking about places they went out to eat. Yeah, I went over there. Oh, I went over to Junior's. Oh, I had the cheesecake. Then they look at you and say, where have you been out to eat? And you say, I haven't eaten yet. You haven't eaten yet? You 25 and you ain't eat nothing yet? Golly. You're going to be 30 before you get something to eat. I hope, I, hope, I hope you can still eat at 40, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you show his hunger, ain't you? Oh, 40 old self, haven't eaten nothing. The culture makes virginity sound like starvation. This is why you're embarrassed to say that in a crowd. And so what we want to do today is we want to ask ourselves the question, does the culture have greater insight than the designer of sex? Does God have greater detail, more intimate knowledge? And so what we're going to look at today in the Song of Solomon is an actual wedding night. We're in Song of Solomon chapter 4, and as we look in the chapter we're remembering that in chapters one and two, there was this moment where the woman is talking to the man. She's saying how much she loves him and cares for him. Chapter three, which we're not looking at in particular, is the wedding itself. But in chapter four is the honeymoon night. Chapter four is after all the ceremony. It's the night that they would be together for the first time. And I'm going to invite you into that to talk about that, to give you a biblical framework for sex. Here's one thing I want you to remember, and it's going to help us understand what's happening in chapter 4. In chapter 1, the young lady says, I am very dark but lovely. And if you remember what we talked about during that time, we said that dark, being dark in that time, in a Mediterranean culture where most people were olive-skinned, to be dark meant you worked outside. And it was an indication that she was poor. And then she goes on to say that her brothers didn't care for her. She talks about she, she didn't have the body that she wanted when she talked about the vineyard. She didn't have the body she wanted. She says, I'm very dark, which she's saying is a pejorative, in a pejorative kind of way. But I'm lovely. What this woman struggles with is that she believes she's beautiful but, beautiful, but she struggles to believe she's beautiful. And so on the wedding night, when the crowd is no longer there, it's just him and her. She's nervous, I'm sure. He's nervous, I'm sure. And there they look at each other, and here's what he says. Chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, you are beautiful. My love, behold, you 
are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Now you're going to see this phrase behind your veil twice. It's an indication that she still has a veil on. All her clothes are on. And he is going to detail her beauty. And we're going to talk about the importance of that in just a moment. But I want you to see what he does. He's overwhelmingly complimenting her, saying her eyes are like doves behind that veil. He goes on in the same verse. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. And it's this imagery of a hair just cascading down, being beautiful. Then he says in verse 2, your teeth are like flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost its young. Understand, he's saying, you have all your teeth. <laughs> that is exactly what he's saying. And it's interesting. He says, you, they got, both got twins. You got one here, and you got one here, girl. <laughs> twins. His wordplay is strong. His game, tight. He says they've just come up, he's, and he says, and you brush your teeth. This touched her. Your lips are like scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate. Cheeks on her face, you wicked sinners. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate. But listen, look what he says again. Behind your veil. She's nothing has happened yet. A move has not been made yet. Think of the intimacy here. He's staring at her. Your eyes, your teeth, your hair your lips, and he's ministering to her. He even says, your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On its hangs thousands of shields, all of them shields of warriors. Obviously, do not write this to a woman today to say your neck looks like a tower. You look like you've been in war, okay? But what, but what she understood was she understood the military imagery of that, and she understood that what he was saying was not just about her physical neck, but about her stature, about the way she carries herself. You've been through so much. You're still so confident. Your parents didn't take care of you, but you've made it through all this time. The clothes haven't come off yet. This is all before the veil comes down. When this woman looks at herself, she remembers the trauma of her past. She has issues that she's been working through. And what he is doing is he's ministering to a deep need that she has. She does not see herself properly. And just like as a pastor, a speaker, or a communicator does, in order for you to get the point, I will give you analogies. I will give you uh, hyperbole. I will give you imagery in order for you to get the point. 
And even to the point where he talks about her hair being like goats coming down, all that, it's just to help her to see herself, how he sees her beauty. What we understand when he says your hair is like this, your teeth are like this, is that in order to create a context of a healthy sexual life in a marriage, you must see emotional intimacy before physical intimacy. It is ministering to the needs of each other. But what's important here as well is men seeing that ministering to the needs of a wife happens way before the bedroom, before the clothes come off. He speaks to her needs. In your, for many of you who are dating, I understand that when you go out on a date, you get dressed up, you might have some roses, you might have candy. You talk, you buy the meal, you make her feel special. But understand that romance is not just about having time where you go out and you do cards and candy. That's maybe happens in dating and maybe that happens for a season. But romance is about ministering to someone's needs, making a woman feel seen, understood, cared for. My wife, sure, she loves it when I give her a card. She loves it to have candy. Flowers are great. But when I do the dishes, my Lord. Mm. Mm. Wow. One time, one time, uh, the, my family was going up to Boston, and I went and I got the car all washed up, got it cleaned on the inside. Her little, uh, the thing that holds your phone, it had broken, so I got her a new one and all that, and filled up the tank, all that, parked the car right in the front so when she came out, they'd be ready to go. Now, I didn't think about it. I just did it all. And she walked out, she walked in there and she got, you know, where the kids came down, I brought all the luggage down, got everything together. When she got in the car to go, she went, bye baby. And then she kept texting me about it. I cannot believe you did. Look at all this stuff you did. Yo, why you washing the car set? It is paying attention to what she needs. Most women feel emotional motivation to have sex, not because the dude is so buff and he's so cute. It's because you're helping her, doing the things that she needs. You see, some men are great with fixing things. But if you fix things but you don't listen to her, you will not be able to get a return on investment in the bedroom. The fact of the matter is, women have different needs that they want spoken to, cared for, loved. And so to create a romantic atmosphere, it's ministering to what she's been talking about, the struggles that she's had, caring for the kids taking the load off her. 
Now, understand that beyond just creating that atmosphere, something, and gentlemen, particularly if you're single, I want to tell you this because no one told me this. Okay? Pay attention. I did not understand something my wife wanted. And that's this phrase be, uh, behind the veil, meaning he hasn't made a quick move yet. Her clothes are still on. You don't hear about what he's doing physically yet. But I could imagine maybe he's holding her hand. Gentlemen, I did not understand what non-sexual touch was before I got married. That is touching without an end goal in mind. Just hugging, just putting a hand on the back. You see, you minister to a woman's needs emotionally, but also the physical doesn't have to be sexual. I didn't know that. My wife, when we first got married, said, let's cuddle. And I thought cuddling was pregame warm-up. I promise you, I had no idea she meant that's it. Hold me and go to sleep. I had no idea. I mean this with my whole heart. I, I, I really thought this is what, what we do before we have sex. And to be honest with you, it's still a struggle. But I'm saying, <laughs> and part of it is like, anytime, like a little boy, anytime I come around my wife, I'm like Neanderthal man, I'm like, can I touch you please? <laughs> I want to touch your body. And my wife's like, no, can you just hold me? I'm like, oh, 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 you know, and it's just, I have to like, oh, okay, so that's all we're doing. That's it. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Non-sexual touch is a game changer because it makes my wife feel whole and human and like cared for and not just a part of a plan. And when this happens, it fills her emotional tank. When you're ministering through words, when you're ministering through help, when you're just holding her and caring for her, it makes her feel whole. What we have to understand is that God-honoring sex happens way before the bedroom. It happens in a woman's mind, happens in a woman's heart, and you've got to create an atmosphere. Now, for men, this is a tremendous struggle, tremendous struggle. Men have a gift. A man can turn, literally, a man can turn any comment into a sexual comment. It's fascinating. My wife's like, hey, can you stir the eggs? I'll, I'll stir your eggs. <laughs> Honey, can you hold this books? I'll hold your books. Can you pass the salt and pepper? I'll pass the salt and pepper now. It's fascinating. 
And every time a woman's like, really? really? Can we eat tonight? <laughs> what I want you to see men here <clears throat> in verse 5, and, and ladies, I'm coming to you, but verse 5, he says, your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that, that graze among the lilies. Now, when he says a gazelle or fawns, this is a really important point because he talked about earlier gazelles and does, and these are all a part of the antelope family, but they are the deer in general are the kind of animal that when they're startled, they, they run, they move. You, it's something you would be gentle with, right? And so when he compares them to such a delicate, fragile animal, it speaks to how his approach has been all verbal, now, when he talks about her breast, we're going to, uh, uh, I want you to know the whole behind the veil don't happen no more after this verse. <laughs> the veil is gone. Amen. <laughs> so when he's talking about her breast, that means that she is, she's naked now and he's still moving slow. You see, brothers, this is why pornography will just completely destroy your intimacy. This is why a lot of the movies that you've seen will completely destroy your intimacy. Because they're just, they're literally movies. They're not real life. You know, the, 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 the whole storyline is like a guy left, the plumber left a wrench over there, and it's like, you forgot your wrench. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's like a sexual escapade. And I'm like, y'all, most of the time, my wife's wearing my shirt. I'm like, hey, you want to have sex? She's like, all right. You know, and it's like something we got to, not something that's like in the movies, all right? And a lot of times, it's me motivating her gently in the midst of a tragic and challenging world. His approach matters. Approach matters. Approach matters. It's not just the act. It's the approach. Now, with that, we are in a world where if you're married in here, you're married, but your marriage is not the only thing that happens in your life. You work, you, you, have, you might have kids, you might not have kids, you have other responsibilities. And it is with that in mind that the man must approach emotionally, he must approach gently. But for women in this context, and I do want to be cautious in that, every couple have different levels of sexual drive. But, but more often than not, the man will have more of a sexual drive than the woman. It's with this in mind that I, I do want to point out that sex is a physical thing. Just one more thought to our brothers here. Sex is a physical thing. And because it's a physical activity lasting however long it lasts, when a man is trying to motivate a woman to have sex, sometimes it's just the physical dynamic of it that makes a woman be less motivated. She's had a long day. She's dealt with kids or she's dealt with work. Now she's laying down and you're saying you want to have sex. And although a woman still cares for you and she loves you, saying I want to have sex would be like, hey, let's, let's clean out the closet. Like, let's, let's, let's do some push-ups. Like, she's just thinking about the, I don't, I can't, oh, I'm so tired. Like, she just doesn't want to do another thing. So you can't, 
you can't just get offended by the fact that she doesn't want to put 10 to 20 minutes into a physical activity at 10 o'clock when she show is tired, right? That's just a reality. And this is the story they don't tell you. The story they don't tell you is life is complicated. That sex in the movies is quick. It's different angles. It's not a long day. It's not emotional. It doesn't deal with your trauma, your past. No. Sex is complicated. And when you get into a marriage, sex will now become something that you will have to almost discipline yourself for. Paul the Apostle, in the same book I referenced before, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, here's what he says in chapter 7, verse 5. He says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He is, throughout this chapter, literally commanding couples to have sex. And he's saying, if you do not, then Satan will try to tempt you away from the person that God has designed for you. Here's the thing they don't tell you in the movies. Sex in a marriage is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual discipline. I remember I was doing premarital counseling one time, and I went over this verse with, with a guy. And I was like, yeah, in marriage, it's a spiritual discipline. He's like, well, I believe God's gifted me, brother. I, don't, I believe the Lord has just anointed me. I'll be all right. Three kids later, he said, I wish I would have listened. Because let me tell you all this. Satan is the, at the end of that message. Satan will have it so that you have as much sex as possible before you're married, and then he would have it that you would have as little sex as possible when you're married. That's why spiritual discipline before you're married about sex, telling yourself not to have it, is the same kind of motivation to tell yourself to have it. So you don't think you'll have to be motivated to have sex. The married people know what I'm talking about. Praise the lamb that was slain, okay? Because it is, it, listen, sex is spiritual warfare. And sex is spiritual discipline. Because you've got to see who ended up in the text, Satan. Satan would have it that you would be demotivated to be with one another. Satan would have it that you would click and drag on all those videos. Satan would have it so that when that person is over there and you are at your meeting and all of a sudden they're winking at you and you don't feel that from your wife anymore. Satan's the one that will keep you busy. And you working so hard to get a better job. You're working so hard to become a better leader. You're working so hard to be seen by your boss. And all of a sudden you move from a cubicle to a boardroom. All the while your bedroom is a board room. (laughs) 
And so what we so what we have to understand, therefore, is you have to have a conversation about sex. As a couple, you have to have a conversation about his needs and her needs. You have to have that conversation. You literally, men, you have to research what your wife needs. And ladies, you have to research his needs. Whenever I go on a trip, my wife's like, you all right? Because I can help. She understands what it means for a man to be alone in a hotel room. This activity is built out of service. It's built out of union and care. That's why the appetite view will destroy you in a marriage. Because if you have sex only when you want it, you will deprive the other person of the relationship. It's a us thing. It's a fulfillment together. It is with this in mind that we understand that, ladies, the conversation here for men, when I asked, when I said my wife asked me that question, I had a couple that I was counseling one time, and I, I, I often ask couples, when was the last time they had sex? Because it is an indication of intimacy. They said, we haven't had sex in about three or four months. And I said, well, let me tell you something. I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. But somebody has had an orgasm. Somebody, somehow, it happened. There is no way you're going to go three or four months and just not, unless you know, there could be physical challenges, I don't want to give, but... The reality is your body has been set up to want sex at different levels. Now, again, I want to note, there's all different types of physical issues out there, but awareness. Men and women must be aware of the sexual needs, sexual drives, and sexual desires of their spouse. There must be a conversation about what they like. There must be a conversation about what you're willing to do. But there must be a conversation so that the satisfaction is happening in your home from one another. Amen? Amen. Now, I want to note that when we get to verse 12, now I want... So, chapter 4 is mad spicy, and so... There's just some things I'm not going to interpret. Amen? Amen. But verse 12 says, A garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. The imagery of locked, locked, sealed. It is the imagery of her being a virgin on her wedding night. And in this moment, and on this night, he is affirming that moment with how she has kept herself. 
And I want to encourage you, because I understand this room is mostly single, that many of you may not have had a conversation like this, and many of you may have already had sex. I want to give you a vision for why today can be the renewal of what God has for you. The, the imagery here is of holiness, of being set apart, being set apart for God, being set apart for his design and what he would have. He's essentially saying, you've saved yourself for me. As a Christian, as a follower of Christ, we believe that we enter into a covenant with God, a binding spiritual agreement. Marriage, of all the weddings that I've done this past year, we always say, till death do us part. We never say, until I'm not happy anymore, until I get tired. No, what we say is death, because the nature of a covenant is a binding promise of what a person will do. God makes a covenant with Noah that he would never flood the earth again. God makes a covenant with Abraham that he would bless all the nations. God makes a covenant with Israel that he would have them enter into the land. And Jesus, in the New Testament, makes a covenant, a new covenant, saying that in the Old Testament there were the shedding of blood of bulls and goats, but now I am shedding my blood, and that will be the satisfaction of God's wrath. And now you and I will be together, and I am bound to you. And every time we eat that bread and we drink that cup, we reaffirm the covenant that he has made to us, that he has promised to always be with us. He has promised to never leave us. Every time we take that and we stand on that promise, and if you have blown it in your life, and if you have blown it sexually, and you are insecure about your relationship with God because you watched porn, or you lied, or you did all these different things, then I'm telling you tonight that you don't understand the covenant. You see, God did not sign a prenuptial agreement. What he did was say, forever I'll be with you. This is a forever promise. And that forever promise makes someone secure when you failed. Secure when you're insecure. You can come back to the house of God no matter how much you failed. You can pray again no matter how much you've lied. You can read the word again even though your life hasn't lined up. The covenant makes you secure. And the covenant tells you, we're still going to work through this, even though I'm failing. Friends, the, the Bible says in Mark 10 and 7 and 8, Jesus says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. No longer two, but one. And sex Lovemaking is this spiritual and 
invisible expression of the covenant you're making before God, that this is secure. And sex was always meant to be in the context of covenant. Never of appetite. Never feeling like a contract. But always like a covenant. Every time I did a wedding this year, every time I do a wedding, the little girl will come, the flower girl, she'll try her best to come down the aisle. Her mom or her auntie be like, come on, baby. The ring bearer's like, all the friends come down, they look and fly, people are clapping. Like, everything is always light and fun. The groom comes out. They're like, okay, okay, okay. And he's like, you know what I'm saying? Everybody's fun. It's all fun and games. But when I say, all rise for the coming of the bride, people stand. They look. And have you ever looked at the groom? Messed up. (laughs) This brother then picked her up a thousand times. Seen her a hundred times. She's walked towards him so many times. Why is it in this moment he's shaken? Because when I say all rise, what you don't realize is that it's actually a prophetic moment. You see, marriage is nothing more than a window into the covenant we have with God. One day he will meet us in the air and we will rise. One day he will say, all rise for the coming of the bride and the bride will meet him in the air and that rocks us to our core because we know we have a precious promise from God. We have someone in heaven that is caring for us and keeping us and loving us and sustaining us. The reason why that man is so shaking is because marriage is forever. And you've got to ask yourself, do I want to preserve my body, my life, for the context of forever? Or for a night? Or for a relationship? And I ask you today, what did you hear today? Did you hear don't have sex? Because once you heard I was talking about sex, you knew that was coming, right? Don't have sex if you're single. But if you paid attention, I talked in very great detail about sex. No, I I think I actually encouraged people to have sex. I actually said sex was war. No. I'm actually not encouraging you away from something tonight. I'm encouraging you towards someone. The Bible says in Romans 12, in the middle there, it says, don't be conformed, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
And unfortunately, while you were growing up, you heard all this music, you saw all this entertainment, you had all these friends, and maybe you came to church, but all you heard was don't be conformed to the world. All you heard was don't. Don't have sex. Don't be like them. But you missed the first verse. Because in the first verse, he says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. No, this, what this verse is not saying is what God doesn't want for you. It's saying God wants you. You. He wants all of you. And he says, when you are a living sacrifice, you are holy. And all holiness means is that you are set apart for God. And tonight, you have to know that when I, before I got married, before I came, became a Christian, all I knew was this appetite view. All I knew was have sex when you can have it, whoever you can have it with. And I went on the campus of Howard University and started doing campus ministry. I rededicated my life to Christ. And I saw a young lady I slept with. She was now in a grad program there. And have you ever had someone see you and you pretend you don't see them? Have you ever done that? She's like, is that? And I was like, no, not me. And I just pretended like she didn't see me. And I went back to my room, and I was so convicted. I saw her again across the yard, and I ran across the yard. And I said, hey, it's me. She goes, I thought you were over there the other day. I said, yeah, that was me. I was just embarrassed. She said, okay, well, what you doing here? And I said, I'm doing um. <laughs> camp, campus ministry, ministry. She was like, you a minister? I was like, I know, I know, it's crazy. She was like, okay. I said, hey, can I get your email address? And I wrote, and I said, I'm so sorry for the way that I treated you. And I want you to know that when we were at James Madison University, I treated a lot of women like that. And I, I avoid them now. But I believe God wanted me to tell you not just I'm sorry, but that I'm new. I'm new. And I'm, I've, I've changed. Not because I've made a commitment to not have sex. He changed me. I'm telling you, he changed me. And I was a wretch. And he changed my affections. And I want you to know tonight, I don't care what you did last night. I don't care what you did right before here. I don't care if you're a couple that's been having sex with one another. I don't care if you're single. I know he'll change you.
But it does not start with the commitment to not have sex. It starts with being a living sacrifice and dedicating yourself to Jesus and saying, I want you. I want you, Jesus. And then you look at him and you say, you change me. I want to do everything I did the day before. You change me. I want to do everything. I, I, I still have my friends around me. I still have those desires. You change me. And by the time that I met my wife, I had committed myself to holiness. And I believe that set us up for a great marriage. And that's going to be some of y'all's stories tonight. Some of you have been living far from God, and tonight you're going to recommit yourself, not to purity, but to the pure one. He is making you new every day. Tonight, would you, would you stand with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, we just ask you that we would not be about posturing ourselves to make a moment, but rather, Lord, would you in this moment give men and women tonight the courage to say, you change me. I dedicate myself to you. And let your spirit flow in this place. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.